Okay, today's scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy 5, uh, verses 7 to 25, 17 to 25. Hmm. Um, all right, so the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Thank you, Grace, for reading. Thank you to the team, <clears throat> excuse me, for leading. And uh, let me get, a, get an app there. Uh, can you just get the chorus that we just sung, Show Us Christ? If you can get that chorus back on the screen very quickly. I know this is not in our notes. This is not prompted. Um, while we were singing this, it dawned on me, uh, or, or I kind of was reminded, that there is a church, there are probably a number of churches, but I know of one specifically, that on their pulpit, uh, when you come up to preach at the pulpit, there is a note at the top of the pulpit directed to the preacher so that as the person bringing the word of God kind of comes and opens their Bible and is about to declare the word of God, the note simply says, we would see Christ. Uh, it's perhaps older English, but the note means we want to see Jesus. We don't want to see you. We, we're not interested in kind of how well you might do this. We're not interested in little stories that make you look like a hero or anything like that. We want to see Jesus. And we want to see Jesus through the preaching of your word. That's the goal of the preaching of the word, is to declare Jesus Christ as Lord, because that's what the word does. The word reveals who Jesus is. So this morning, as we sang that, and as I looked at that, I thought it's time for us as White Rock Baptist Church to do something that is really going to make us all feel super uncomfortable. Um, and if you're visiting with us this morning, I apologize profusely. Uh, but if you're a regular, I, I want to do this because I think it reminds us of how crucial this is. So in a moment, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. In a moment, I'm going to ask that you simply turn where you are, whether it's in a little group of two people or three people or four people. It doesn't matter. If you're on your own, just turn around to the person behind you. If there's just two of you, that's fine. If there's three, it's all good. And what I would like you to do in those little huddles of two, three, or four people is in 30 seconds or less, I want you to pray a simple prayer. And you're actually going to be praying for me. I want you to pray this morning out loud so that those who are with you can affirm and agree and can say amen. I want you to pray and say, Lord, help Brian to preach your word so that we would see you and we would hear from you. Go ahead, turn into little groups, two, three, 30 seconds, let's pray.
Indeed, God, that is my prayer. That is our prayer this morning, that as we go through your word, we would see Christ. Father, I am aware that I am a man. And Lord, if I speak from my own heart or perspective, I give the words of man. But Lord, we would see Christ. We want to encounter you. And therefore, we pray that by your spirit, you would open your word to us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, if you're visiting with us, I apologize. Well, actually, no, I don't really. That was, that was awfully Canadian, wasn't it? <laughs> if you are visiting with us this morning, you might wonder about that passage we just read. And you might kind of think, well, that's a bit of an odd passage. Why are you preaching from that? What's, what's going on? So over the last couple of weeks, we've actually been preaching a series through the book, First Timothy. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, and it gives a number of instructions on how Timothy, as a pastor in a congregation or a community of saints, is supposed to conduct the affairs of that church. So in the letter, uh, there are instructions to Timothy as an individual. There are also instructions to Timothy on how to kind of coordinate the church, how to lead, administrate, how to preach and teach, uh, as well as instructions into that local congregation, instructions for the saints of how to behave, how to live in community as Christ followers. And so the question then is, well, why would we preach through something like that? Why would we kind of preach through a letter from the Bible or a book of the Bible? Surely we could be more effective if we preached into each one of our needs instead. Uh, You know, let's rather have a six-week series dealing with overcoming doubt or let's have an eight-week series on kind of how to live a better marriage or have a better marriage or have a better family. And there's nothing wrong with those. Those are good things. And the Scripture speaks into those topics as well as countless other topics. But the problem is often when we come to Scripture with that sense of what can I get from this, how can I benefit, how will this feed me, we miss, we miss an important element of Scripture. And the important element of Scripture is Scripture isn't just written to us as individuals, it's written to us as a community, as a corporate And so when we preach through a book of the Bible systematically, we cover both individual needs as well as corporate issues and matters. And those become crucial because we have a world outside the walls of this church and the walls outside of the church who are looking in. And they're going, we want to see the difference Christ makes in this community before we come and listen and before we come and visit And we hope that when we come and visit, the pastor doesn't make us pray with random strangers around us. But that's a different story. And so as we preach systematically, we do so because we understand that the whole counsel of Scripture is vital for us as the community of God. Because it's as we live together as the community of God that Christ is revealed and Christ is proclaimed to the world. So if you were timing my sermon, you can push reset because that had nothing to do with my sermon. That was just a little bit of background. You know, I was in the corporate environment before I came into ministry. I spent 10 years in IT, uh, working for a couple of companies and consulting into various sectors of industry. But there, I remember vividly one time when I looked at my paycheck and I was convinced I was not getting enough. 
Um, anybody ever had that kind of feeling? You've looked at a paycheck and you're convinced you're not getting enough. So, so I, I looked at my paycheck, my pay stub, and, and I was kind of like, I, surely I'm worth more. And so this kind of thought just kind of germinated. And it actually took quite a while. I would get my pay stub month after month, and, and I'd be like, I, oh, you know, I'm sure I'm worth more. I'm sure. I, until eventually somebody challenged me and said, well, why don't you just ask for a raise? You can do that? Yes. Go to your boss and kind of spell everything out and ask for a raise. So I did that. And I very nervously went up to my boss and I scheduled a meeting with him and, and kind of I sat down and I was this young guy, still had long hair, you know, everybody had long hair in IT during those days. And so I kind of nervously sat in front of my boss and I started kind of going, um, well, you know, the thing is, don't get me wrong, I love my job, I'm, I'm glad I'm here, I'm thrilled to be getting money for doing what I do. But here's the thing. I, I think I need more money. And I kind of spelt out why. I showed him my budget and I was kind of played open cards. And I did a lot of talking during that meeting. And towards the end, he, he simply said, no, you're right. Okay, we'll give you a raise. And that was it. And he gave me a raise. And I walked out and I remember thinking afterwards, I had two thoughts. The first thought was, why was I so nervous? Why was I so scared? I mean, we're, we're men, we're discussing things, uh, kind of needs for my life and my family and all those sorts of things. Of course, he would take me seriously. Why? He wasn't going to fire me. You know, the worst that would happen is he's going to say no. So why am I so nervous? But then the second thought occurred to me, wait a minute, how much am I really worth if without blinking, he said, yeah, sure, we'll give you a bit of a raise, and he let me go out. When I left IT to go and work for my church, similar thing happened. I went to my boss and I resigned. And I said to him, you know, I'm, I'm feeling led by God, called to go into ministry, and it's an incredible opportunity, and I simply cannot say no, and so I have to attend to my resignation, and, and I want to kind of help the company as best as I can. I don't just want to disappear. I want to help the transition and all of that. And the first thing my boss did was, he asked me if more money would keep me at the company. If he gave me a raise. Of course, you can imagine his shock and horror when I said, well, actually, I'm going to be getting about half of what I'm getting now when I go and become a youth pastor. And he couldn't, couldn't fathom that. Today's passage of Scripture, if you're taking notes, I had thought of a sermon title being the one where I ask for a raise but I figured that might not go over very well. And if you're communicating that to somebody after church and they say, well, what did the preacher talk about? And you go, well, he asked for a raise. Uh, you know, that, I, we're not one of those churches, okay? That's, that's not us. This passage is actually quite a straightforward passage. So I'm going to spend just a few minutes going through the passage. We'll have a look at a couple of the verses and look at what jumps out. But as always... And quite naturally, we're going to end with the sense of, well, what does it mean for us now, today? And a part of that for us is me as the individual within the corporate, for you as the individual within the community, what does that mean? How then shall we live in light of a passage of Scripture like this? So what is Paul saying? What's the instruction? In verse 17 and verse 18, Paul says, to the elders, or sorry, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, 
especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and workers deserve their wages. Now verse 18 uh, is an illustration and a biblical reference. Paul is preaching, you know, he's doing a good sermon here. He's illustrating and using a biblical reference. He's referring to the Deuteronomy code and rules and law that when an ox is working, that ox should be able to eat from the field that it's working in. Uh, Or when somebody is working, that worker deserves their wages. Don't withhold the wages. And so Paul kind of gives this illustration. But in verse 17, uh, Paul says elders or pastors or shepherds, those who take care of the flock, those who look after the community of saints, uh, they should be taken care of by the congregation, by that community. Of course, we might go, well, why? Why should we take care of this individual who is shepherding and pastoring, and especially if they're preaching and teaching? Well, it's quite obvious. The person who leads in this way, the person who devotes themselves to preaching and to teaching, needs to spend time in prayer and spend time in the Word, studying and grappling and wrestling with it so that they can come and teach and preach, so that they can speak on behalf of God to the community. And when they do that, they shouldn't be stressing and worrying about income and provision. I'm human, though. And like you, there are days when I worry about income and provision and mortgages and interest rates and home loans and car loans and all those kind of things. So what Paul is saying is not actually the pastor should just give a, get a free ride and you should just take care of him and make sure he has the best house and the best car and the best clothing and all those. That's not what Paul is saying here. But certainly what Paul is saying is in a community, if you call and if you bring leaders in who shepherd and teach and preach, make sure they're able to devote themselves to that instead of having to worry about the cares and concerns that everyone typically would worry about. I grew up in a Baptist church and I don't know how often I heard somebody make the comment, Lord, you keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. That is a terrible comment when it comes to the pastor. Yes, pray that we as pastors will remain humble. But when, when the church says that, when it has this mentality of, Lord, you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor, that doesn't serve the body in any way. The writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 says, Have confidence in your leaders, submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. This is why Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, take care of those who shepherd over you. Because if it's a burden to them, it will be of no benefit to you. It won't serve you. Paul goes on in verse 19 and he says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Yes, elders, pastors, shepherds, those who serve in various leadership capacity and role within the church. Can I let you in on a secret? We're human. I know sometimes you might not think that. Actually, now that you're getting to know me nearly two years in, you're like, no, we know, Brian, you're human. We know that. We're susceptible to sin. 
There are times where those in ministry will fall, that will fail, and, and will make terrible, sinful mistakes. And so Paul deals with that in a few moments, but Paul quite immediately up front starts with, don't entertain an accusation. If somebody comes along and accuses somebody in ministry as a pastor or elder or shepherd of the church, don't simply entertain that accusation. Make sure there is justification to that by having multiple witnesses. Why? So that if somebody is upset with someone, this isn't just a way to get back at them. You know, I need to let you know, in case you haven't yet, I know you've had this experience with me, maybe you haven't with Jennifer yet, but it'll come there. There will be a day when Jennifer will disappoint you tremendously. I know you, you find that hard to, to fathom, even as she enjoys her graduation this afternoon. There will come a day, because there will come a day when I will bitterly disappoint you. There will come a day when David or Jason or Lisa or anybody in pastoral ministry in a church will disappoint you. Either we will say something that you think we shouldn't say, or we will do something that you think we shouldn't do, or we won't do something that you think we should do. And so Paul is saying, in that, don't now start entertaining accusations. Disappointments, unless it was through a sinful action, is not sin. So don't suddenly decide, well, actually, I'm just going to throw rocks at this pastor and this shepherd because I don't like them. No. Where there is disappointment, go to the individual and deal with that, yes. But don't pass idle threats. Don't make accusations in anger or jealousy or something of that nature. This is why Paul says, don't entertain those accusations unless there are witnesses. And then Paul goes on in verse 20, and he kind of says, where there is sin, it must be dealt with for the sake of the body of Christ. A, a, a pastor, a shepherd, somebody whose ministry is preaching and teaching, if they are living in deliberate and continual and willful sin, will be detrimental to the body of Christ. And therefore, that sin must be dealt with. And because they have such a public role and they're seeing and they're in the spotlight, well, obviously, dealing with that is going to be public. But deal with it. Bring it out. Don't let it just be pushed aside. Don't forget about it. And again, in verse 21, Paul kind of echoes this. Don't have this, this favoritism. Don't think, well, you know, I like the guy, he's a nice guy, uh, or, or she's a nice lady, and, and I just like the way she does that, and so, you know what, I'm going to overlook that sin. No, because it doesn't just hurt the pastor or the shepherd, it hurts the flock, it hurts the congregation. Therefore, deal with it. I love youth pastors. I used to be a youth pastor. Now, I know that there are some youth pastors who are called into youth ministry full-time. I have a good friend who has just recently retired at 65, and he retired as a youth pastor. He was a youth pastor for 40 years. He is now on the mission field training other youth pastors, even though he's retired. He is a full-time youth pastor. But the vast majority of youth pastors come into their youth ministry role because it is an opportunity to test the call of God. And so they are tested and they're given opportunity to serve and, and kind of, we know they're going to make mistakes. 
And that's kind of part of the journey as we help them. You know, I've, I've had a couple of youth pastors over my years of ministry, and uh, you know, these stories are public, so I know I can share them. I just won't share any names to, to protect them. I had one youth pastor, one youth ministry night, all the teenagers had gathered at the church, and he was busy ministering, and uh, his wife was at home, and the house was next door to the church, and so she had a friend over, and of course, some of the young girls, they preferred the youth pastor's wife. They had a relationship, nothing wrong with that, and so they were hanging out there. The only problem was the friend of this youth pastor's wife was a tattoo artist, and so they kind of decided, wouldn't it be cool if we got some tattoos? So a group of girls got tattoos while at youth, in inverted commas. And yeah, you can imagine the kind of consternation that some parents had over this. In case you didn't know, tattoos really aren't reversible. It's not that easy. And so I get called by a very concerned parent. Brian, do you know that the kids got tattoos at youth last night? I'm like, no, surely not. Yeah, I mean, and so in, in kind of processing, the problem wasn't the tattoos. As I spoke with the youth pastor and his wife, their initial response was to deny it. And so they outright lied. And then I was faced with the challenge. You see, now I've got to deal with moral failure, not just a stupid choice. Youth pastors will do stupid things from time to time because they're young and they're learning and they're growing. I did many a stupid thing. But this is an elder in training, along with his wife who supports him, who has now not just done something crazy, now now they've lied. Now there's a moral issue. And we as an eldership had to deal with that. We had to respond to that in a way that brought correction and discipline, but also in a way that helped him and her learn through that so that they could grow. And now they serve God in a church plant that is growing and doing incredible things. I had another youth pastor. He came home one day. The problem was he came home blind drunk. And I was the one who found out because I happened to see him as he came home and went to go talk to him and realized this was not good. And as we allowed him to sleep it off because it was pointless, the next day he came really in humiliation and threw himself at my feet and said, I have sinned and I'm sorry. And there was, yes, a failure, but there was an acknowledgement of it. And he threw himself and said, whatever the elders decide, I'm okay with. And again with him, we walk through a process of restoration and recovery. And he's not currently in ministry because he's realized that there are things that he needs to work through and process. But it was because we understood the importance of Scripture like this for the whole body that we as an eldership had to deal with those sin issues. Because it was for the body and also for the individuals. They had to be dealt with in a graceful way, and that's what spiritual leadership is all about. Paul goes on 
in verse 22, and, and he kind of says, don't be quick to lay on hands. And you might kind of wonder, well, what's he talking about? Well, Paul's saying because of the damage of sin and the damage that it will do within the body of Christ, don't be quick to lay on hands for leadership. And this would be a throwback to a couple of verses back or a few chapters back where Paul talks about the qualifications of elders and deacons and speaks about laying hands on them for ministry. And a few verses before that where Paul talks to Timothy about the time people laid hands on him and prayed over him and set him apart for ministry. Paul's saying, don't be in a rush. Don't see somebody and go, hey, this person's great. This person's gifted to, to do this. Let's quickly lay hands and set them apart. No, don't be in a rush to do that. Yes, test. Yes, try. Yes, give them opportunity to experiment and give them opportunity to grow. Don't be a rush. And then Paul has this little ADD moment. You know the one I'm talking about, where he says, don't drink water, take some wine for your frequent ailments. And and I'm sure some of you, as you were reading through that, went, what on earth does this verse have to do in the context of this? This just doesn't make sense. Is Paul saying that we should all just go out and drink wine? Uh, You know, what, what is happening here? It's actually a quite a straightforward thing, to be honest. You see, Timothy has been in conversation with Paul. We know this because there are other questions that are answered in this letter and in 2 Timothy. So it is very likely that Timothy, because of his stomach ailments, has been drinking wine to try and help that out. And it's very likely that Timothy has been accused by others, false teachers, those outside of the church, who are accusing Timothy of either setting a bad example, what sort of minister drinks in front of his congregation? That's a terrible example, Timothy. You can't be a shepherd. So either they're doing that or they're saying, Timothy, where is your faith? You preach Christ who heals. You pray for healing over people. We've heard Christ has performed these great miracles and healed all these people. So why not you? Where is your faith, Timothy? And so it's very likely that Timothy, in the midst of his questions to Paul, has said, hey, by the way, how do I deal with this? And Paul almost just kind of as part of the conversation, dealing with sin, don't worry, Timothy, this isn't a sin issue. Yes, we know drunkenness is, but this isn't. This isn't a lack of faith. This isn't a poor example. You have some stomach issues. Wine helps that. Drink a little wine, and let's move on with preaching and teaching. And then Paul wraps up in verse 24 and 25. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious. And even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. It's quite obvious there. Obvious sin will eventually be exposed and come to light. On the other hand, good deeds cannot be hidden. And so Paul wraps up this portion. Now, as we read that, we might go, okay, so what? How do I respond to this? What does this mean for us today? We, we kind of understand, Brian, the whole eldership thing, and yes, let's make sure we take care of you. We get that. As an aside, some of you might go, okay, well, Brian, how? How can we take care of you as a pastor or the pastoral team? <clears throat> because surely it's not just about giving money. No, it's not just about money. 
There are funds and there are things within this church where smart and wise individuals historically have come along and said, we want to take care of our pastoral team. We want to take care of our shepherds. Uh, Jennifer is graduating today. As many of you know, Andrew Turnbull is currently studying. A number of our pastors have been through studies. We have a scholarship fund which has been started by members of the church who said, we don't want our pastors to kind of fall behind in terms of their study. We want to be able to help them to study further, to grow, to come to a better understanding, to a deeper understanding of the Word of God. That might appeal to you. I would encourage you, well, then make a donation to that scholarship fund. I don't need to point out to you the cost of housing and the challenge of living in this area. I had dinner yesterday. And there, were, there was another pastoral couple, and we just got chatting about what does it mean to minister here and to live here, because it's not just pastors, it's all sorts of people are struggling. How do we come with housing? And so this church, understanding that, has a fund which assists pastors with their housing. And again, if you want to add to that and help out for that, you're welcome to do that, and you can chat to the board about that, because this isn't a money-making sermon. What about the rest of us, though? for today. How do I read a passage of scripture like that? How do I take it, digest it, and apply it to me individually and therefore for us corporately? I want to close off by focusing on verses 24 and 25. Because I think verses 24 and 25 sum up not just this portion of scripture, but much of what has come before it. You see, when Paul spoke about kind of the the requirements for elders and for deacons and those who shepherd the flock at the earlier portion of the letter, Paul talks about this trajectory, how we should aim towards that, how our lives should direct in a trajectory towards that end. And so Paul now wraps up. You know, those who live in sin, they might be able to hide it for a while, but eventually sin will come to light. It will be exposed. And likewise, not just sin, but also good deeds cannot be kept in the dark. They cannot be hidden. Those who do good and who share kindness or share with others, that will be brought out and that will be exposed in a good way. So I have two thoughts in brief closing for you this morning that I think come straight out of verses 24 and 25. The first side is the negative side and the other side or the other side of the coin is the positive The negative sign that I think Paul is saying here is quite plain. Avoid sin. Avoid sin in your life. This would echo what Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 47. In Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 47, Jesus says this powerful little comment, or makes this powerful little comment, where he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Because it's better to enter into life eternal maimed than it is to be whole and to go down into the fires of hell. Now, is Jesus being literal? Of course not. If Jesus was being literal, this building would be filled with people who have no arms, legs, eyes, ears, mouths. Jesus is not saying that. But what Jesus is saying is he is saying to you, be ruthless with sin in your own life. Give it no foothold. Do not entertain it. Do not go in that direction. Be ruthless. And if it means you have to do practical things to avoid, then do those practical things to get away from sin. 
I was blown away a few weeks ago. It was TEDx White Rock. I know many of you know what TEDx is. For those who don't, it's a kind of a day of speeches and talks that just stimulate ideas and all sorts of things like that. And one of the ladies who spoke at TEDx White Rock spoke about the topic of mutual accountability and how important it is in life to have one or two close friends with whom you can be mutually accountable. And I kind of went, huh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that what the Bible says? 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins to one another, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We're supposed to, in the body of Christ, have one or two others with whom we are totally open and vulnerable and we are accountable with and to. And if we want to be serious in avoiding sin, we need others around us who will help us. That doesn't mean that you have to come up on stage and confess to the whole church some wrongdoing. No, I wouldn't suggest that. But I would strongly encourage you, find one or two people who know you, who love you, who have your back, with whom you can be open and honest and who you can trust and share with them and allow them to ask you difficult questions even as you ask them difficult questions. You know, sometimes I'll get into that sort of relationship with somebody and we'll, we'll kind of draw up some questions beforehand that we ask and we ask each other about Kind of one of my favorite questions in the midst of that, uh, when we're getting towards the end, is I, I sort of say, well, has there been any question today that you didn't want me to ask that I haven't yet? <laughs> and then the follow-on question is, has there been anything today that you haven't actually told me the full story? And it's amazing how as we share with one another, and as we pray for one another, so we're able to be ruthless with sin in our lives. We're not perfect, but we're able to move. We're able to move forward and overcome sin. And I think Paul would echo that, avoid sin. But as we avoid sin, as there is now this kind of void, what do we fill it with? Well, that's the second point. Replace it with good deeds. That's what that verse says. Good deeds, even those done in secret, will come to light. Jason spoke last week about showing compassion, showing kindness to those who need it. We need to be known as people who are kind by nature. We show compassion. We show generous, absurdly generous kindness. Sometimes when I share stories from my own life, I enjoy the stories that kind of, I guess, would not build me up. You know, the kind of stories where I'm the loser and, you know, the guy that was stupid. And those, those stories I'm fine with. But now and again, I do something right. I just don't share that because I don't want to be arrogant. But I want to share a story of something that I think I did right. Not so that you can go, wow, our pastor is so amazing. But so that you can go, you know, I can do that. I can do that. At TEDx, one of the other speakers spoke about kindness. And how important it is for kindness to just be natural. We shouldn't have to watch a movie like Pay It Forward. And we shouldn't have to be challenged by others for random acts of kindness. It should just be natural. So I went enthused and fired up for kindness out to lunch. And I ended up at a little restaurant just in White Rock and sat down and sort of said, Lord, how can I be kind during my mealtime? And it dawned on me, I can pay for somebody else's meal. 
So I looked around for the smallest table, because I'm in <laughs> ministry. No, I, I didn't do that. But I looked around, and, and I saw a table with, with two people just sitting, chatting quietly. I thought, you know what? I can pay for their meal. They're just having sandwiches anyway. It's not going to break the bank. And so I called the waitress over, and I said to her, um, you know what? I just want to do a random act of kindness. I don't want anybody to know, but I'd love to pay for that table's meal. And, and if, you know, all, all I ask in turn is that they would show kindness somewhere else. She was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, so we entered into this conversation about why I'm doing this, and I said I've just been challenged, and you know, I just think it's cool to actually be kind. You know? So she's like, wow, that's pretty cool. So she goes off, and she's not serving the table, and she tells the waiter who is serving this table, and he's like, well, really? What? All of this, and, and so they come over, and they give me the bill, and I pay the bill, uh, and of course I do it separately so that I can tip that waiter, because you know, I don't want him to lose out, and I'm watching now, kind of reading, quietly kind of watching, trying to be inconspicuous, and uh, they call for the bill, and the waiter goes over and says, well, actually, somebody's covered your bill today. And all they want is for you to show some kindness. And, uh, and of course, now I'm just getting super excited because I can see how, like, wow, you know, like, this never happens. And they're looking around, and the waitress lied and said, no, the person's already left. Um, and so they go, oh, we want to pay for that table's meal. And I see them pointing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So they pay for another table's meal. And the waitress comes over afterwards, and she says, you know, I want to thank you. Because that little act of kindness has rippled throughout the restaurant. And it's lifted all the staff. It's certainly made those two tables day just from a simple little gesture of kindness. Now, as I said, I'm not sharing that so you can go, Brian is so amazing. No, it's to show how simple kindness really is. Sometimes it will be something that costs us some money. Other times, kindness might sacrifice time where we offer to give somebody a ride to a hospital, or we offer to give somebody a ride to the, the shops. Sometimes it might be to sacrifice our own kind of evening and, and say to a young couple, hey, we'll look after your children tonight. You guys go out and have a meal. You guys go out and enjoy just a date night while we serve you. You see, when we, we live in this community where we show compassion, we show kindness, the world looks in and says, what on earth is going on? Why are you so compassionate? Why are you so kind? You're, you're different and you know, you're, you're from all over the show, yet you love each other. Isn't that what Jesus said? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is visible. Love is an action. Love is a verb. It's a doing word. And so as we serve one another, we show love and by doing that, we preach Christ. And the world sees Christ because the world sees Christ has made a difference in us. And Christ is changing us and conforming us ever more into his likeness. Avoid sin, replace it with good deeds, and become like Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. Even as we would read a passage that on the surface looks like it's really just about caring for one or two people in the church, and, and it is so easy sometimes for those of us who preach to focus on that. But Lord, we know there's so much more to it. It's not just looking after leaders. It's showing kindness, compassion, and care for each other. And it's as we do that 
that you, Christ, are glorified in our midst. Father, I pray for each person here this morning, whether a, a visitor who's heard and coming to see, or a long-time regular and member of this church. Father, I pray that each one of us would have an encounter with you. And even right now, you would speak to us and you would lead us. For those of us, Lord, who need to deal with sin in our lives, oh God, would you be gracious to us? Would you show us your forgiveness and your mercy? Lord, I know that for many of us who might be in, entrapped within sin, we need somebody, a brother or a sister, to come alongside us, someone with whom we can be open and honest and accountable. God, would you lead us to those men and women, those friends in Christ who won't judge, but who will simply walk alongside and encourage us. And then, Father, as we overcome and as we avoid sin, as we put it to death, Oh, God, help us by your spirit to replace it with good deeds, with kindness. Regardless of what that kindness might look like and what it might entail, that, Lord, it would give us an opportunity to reflect your grace, your love, and your mercy. And it would cause others to ask, why? Why are you doing this? And, Lord, we might be able to share Christ in the midst of that question. Oh God, indeed, take our lives and let them be what you would have them be. We ask this in your name. Amen.